This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Sarah, Sarah Posner. She is the author uh, and reporter uh, with works appearing in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, and Rolling Stones. She's authored several books, including Gods, Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. Sarah, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, we were talking pre-record just uh, D.C., and uh, this has, I'm sure, been an exciting year for D.C., but what's this experience been like for you in a pandemic uh, covering all the different areas that you cover? Well, it's been a challenge because I'm used to, be able, I'm used to being able to go out and do reporting in public spaces, do reporting at political rallies and conferences and things like that. 
uh, do in-person interviews of people and the pandemic made that pretty much impossible. And so I really miss that uh, being um, face-to-face with people and being in the moment of the um, events I'm writing and covering, writing about and covering. So, um, but I can't complain because my family and I have managed to stay safe and free of COVID so far. So, um, you know, things to be grateful for and uh, hoping that this year we'll get through the pandemic. Well, you've been covering uh, politics for for quite a while. Um, You know, have you seen anything like where we are right now? I mean, so like for, for those that are listening, we're recording this the day after the House passed, um, you know, a new uh, bill to help, you know, uh, cover small businesses and, and uh, unemployment checks and things like that for uh, this COVID-19 crisis. But it just seems like things are just at this uh, impassable moment between the two sides working together. What's that experience like, you know, living in that town and trying to cover, um, you know, those that are making these decisions? Well, I think that uh, the situation in D.C. is often misunderstood as gridlock, um, when in fact um, one of the two political parties wants gridlock. They they want their supporters, their base, to think that government is bad and government doesn't do anything for you and government only takes your taxes and takes away your freedom and that sort of thing. Um, whereas the Democrats had a bill ready to go back in May, and Mitch McConnell stalled on it and um, spent more time trying to confirm judges uh, rather than getting aid out to the American people. So I feel like the narrative of gridlock that's just kind of caused by the fact that we have two political parties um, is a terrible misunderstanding of what the situation actually is. Um, Under Trump particularly, um, McConnell has been unwilling and almost gleeful in his uh, obstructionist efforts, obstruction that would stop uh, the ability of the government to provide aid to people who are suffering in this pandemic. And only for, he takes action only for the purpose of, of advancing his political ideology and his political legacy, and that's mostly in the confirmation of judges. So, um, yeah, you know, for for ordinary residents of D.C., that's not really, like, something that's part of our everyday lives. It is of mine because of what I cover and write about in my job. Um, but it's frustrating because I feel like I've been covering um, the use of religion in politics and the use of politics as a, as a bludgeon or a weapon rather than a means to um, an end and, um, you know, a means to a positive end, that is. Uh, and it's, it's frustrating to me to see um, the this, this sort of news coverage of it as if it's something that's just an inevitable consequence of the two-party system rather than a deliberate strategy by one of the parties. It was fascinating, uh, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's not like anybody's not talking about this. But one of the things that's not talked about, uh, um, out of you know, obviously the relief that is coming for a lot of people, is that there were some bipartisan aspects of uh, this bill that was pushed through uh, yesterday, which is, um, you know, you can no longer go to an in-network hospital 
and have out-of-network charges from that hospital um, come to you. Mm -hmm. Insurance company and the hospital have to work those things out. That was a bipartisan aspect of the bill, in fact, coming from a, a GOP uh, congressman. So there are some significant things that happen out of it. I wonder for you, you know, before we jump into a conversation about the book, uh, you know, of all the things to cover, uh, why politics? Uh, walk us back through the story of, of choosing that for, for your focus. You know, I, I've just always been fascinated by really about political power more than the mechanics of politics, um, political philosophy and political ideology, and how people attain and wield political power. So that's the thing that interests me the most as opposed to um, the nuts and bolts of how a piece of legislation gets passed, for example. And so a lot of my work, which also intersects with religion, is really about that, about political power and how people attain it and wield it, which, of course, made the Trump era a very fascinating and terrifying moment in our history to have a front seat for. In 2020, you released a new book, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. This is a fascinating book that looks at the inexplicable marriage of conservative fundamentalist Christians with a political figure that contradicts many of the values they claim to hold sacred. You wrote, white evangelicals remain the most enthusiastic boosters of Trump's presidency, supporting him more than any other demographic group by significant margins. You know, while many of us watched in stunned astonishment uh, by the fact that 82% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016, you decided to write a book about it. So tell us the story behind the formation of this book. Well, during the Republican primary in 2016, um, I was, as sort of had become my beat, covering what what white evangelicals and, and white conservative Catholics, basically, you know, the, the, the core of the religious right, which of the 17 Republican candidates that were running in the primary, which of these candidates were they going to choose? And at first blush, you would think, okay, they're going to, and people, I, I talked to a lot of um, evangelicals in politics, and people were talking about Ted Cruz, they were talking about Marco Rubio, they were even talking about Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, they talked about the fact that both Cruz and, and Walker were preacher's kids. And, you know, ha had that whole, you know, way of like, talking about the Bible and that whole cadence down that really spoke to evangelicals and made them feel like the candidates were one of them, right? And so people were, that's, that's who people were talking about. People were not talking about Trump. And what you saw was a groundswell of support for Trump in the base. And you saw some evangelical leaders, people like Russell Moore, the head of the um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which I'm sure your audience is very familiar with Russell Moore, um, who were agonized about Trump's racism, his nativism, um, his uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies. And so it seemed like, huh, it doesn't seem like the leadership is really getting behind Trump, but the base was ahead of the leadership in getting behind Trump. And then the endorsements started to come in, Jerry Falwell, Robert Jeffress, Paula White, you know, and then it starts to coalesce and then he's an uh, unstoppable train. And at the same time, I was also covering how white nationalists, white supremacists, the alt-right, were also electrified by Trump's candidacy. He was a candidate like the likes of which they had never seen before, and they were incredibly excited about him. 
And so what I was watching in real time was white evangelicals getting behind Trump and these virulent white supremacist neo-Nazi clan types also getting behind him. And I and a lot of other people thought, well, at some point, the evangelicals are going to have to say, look, Trump, this is a bridge too far to call them very fine people on both sides or, or all, you know, many of the various things that he did and said over the course of his candidacy and presidency. But over time, it became clear that there was literally nothing he could do that would lose um, him the affection of white evangelical, the white evangelical base and even the white evangelical leadership as it as it um as it coalesced around him over the course of his presidency. Uh, and so I wrote this book because alone, the adoration of the religious right for Donald Trump, given his um, personal history and his demeanor and um, just the way he conducts himself seems surprising. Um, and the more I peeled away the layers of the onion, so to speak, the less surprising it seemed and it started to make a little bit more sense. And I dug a little bit more um, than I ever had before into the history of the religious right and the history of the conservative movement in the United States. And, um, you know, Donald Trump's moment came um, at a time when white evangelicals were, look, were specifically looking for somebody new, somebody who would break the mold. And this was happening at the same time that there was this huge rise in right-wing nationalism across the globe. Um, and so all of this came together in 2016. And now we've seen four years of just an unprecedented assault on our democracy. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that that the American right wing is ready to go back to the way things were before. I think Trump has has altered their view of what their role in politics is and, and what politics is for. Well, I mean, one uh, correction to what you did say, a little bit has changed uh, in sway of white evangelicals, 82% in 2016 versus 81% in 2020 elections. So uh, <laughs> I guess it I guess some of the bold actions in the last four years caused less than a percentage to to change their vote. Um, you wrote the multiple passes that Christians uh, write give Trump. He couldn't cite Bible verses or articulate even the most basic tenets of Christianity. It was a sharp break from a litmus test of other presidential candidates. What do you think is behind the seeming abandonment of the idea that of the presidential figure, let alone politicians, should at least outwardly act Christian to this shift to a blatant disconnect from the faith? Yeah, it's so interesting because pretty much since Reagan, the first presidential candidate that the religious right really formed to coalesce around, um, they the religious right demanded a certain fluency, if not with the Bible itself, but just with maybe in Reagan's case, like just the idea of America as the shining city on the hill, for example. But then over time, they really evolved it into this idea that candidates have to have their own salvation story that they can articulate to voters. They have to be able to cite the Bible. They have to be able to talk about how the Bible informs their political beliefs and their policy positions. So they put all of the candidates in this box, right, where they had to be able to talk about 
um, the litmus test issues like abortion and LGBT rights in the context of the Bible, talk about how the Bible guides their thinking, would guide, you know, that they would put Christians in, um, in positions of political power in their cabinet and their administration and so forth. Um, they like to talk about it in terms of, I will govern from a biblical worldview. That was kind of the catchphrase that was used for such a long time. And not only could Donald Trump not articulate um, how he would govern from a biblical worldview, he could barely talk about the Bible at all. Um, so, uh, but it became evident to me that those old litmus tests were really more about signaling to voters that they, the religious right, had this kind of monopoly on religion and politics. They were signaling like our view of religion is the only view that is the real American view of what Christianity is. Those other liberal Christians who um, you know, support abortion rights or support church state separation or support same-sex marriage, they're not real Christians, we're the real Christians. Um, but ultimately what Trump did for them was that he was able to articulate a full bore opposition to liberalism itself, right? And so he was not just opposed to their old bogeyman of, you know, abortion rights activists or LGBT rights activists. He was just basically opposed to the entire liberal democratic project. And so when he engaged in these broadsides against Black Lives Matter uh, or, you know, uh, uh, liberals in general or uh, um, uh, immigrants or um, Antifa, these were all his way of signaling that I'm on your side. I'm protecting this white America and its Christian heritage in bold new ways that nobody has ever done for you before. And they really liked that. And, um, and then I think it sort of took off the mask for them that what they really are opposed to when they say they're for Christian values or for governing from a biblical worldview, what they're really for is dismantling a liberal democracy. So that's why they stood by him throughout all these different scandals of his presidency and the stacking of the Supreme Court, the stacking of the federal courts, um, his attacks on the news media, his attacks on uh, a free press. These are all things that they see as beneficial to their project and that he's this bold leader who is doing and saying things that all previous Republican presidents were too timid to do. We need to pause from this fascinating conversation to tell you about one of our annual sponsors. BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, is hosting the annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March the 1st, from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passion for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free allowing anyone interested in participating in this highly regarded series. This year's speaker is Dr. Doug Weaver, Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's lectures are entitled Holy Spirit Power, Baptist and the Experience of Pentecostalism, and Baptist and the Charismatic Experience, From Cessationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Henson for more information or to register. You know, 
the writing's been on the wall for some time, you know, for some of this. It's not a, a Trump-only thing that's happened from white evangelicals. I remember back in 2012 race when Mitt Romney ran against Barack Obama, you know, the mm-hmm. Billy Graham ministry, which had been infamous for their anti-Mormon rhetoric, took down their website pages directly connected to this rhetoric when, when Romney, a devout Mormon, became the, the Republican candidate for president. Um, you know, do you think the divergence of white evangelicalism from the rest of Christianity has actually enabled the American public to see that this group doesn't define the religion as a whole? Well, I think there's a part of the American public that sees that very clearly. Um, but I do think that they still, the religious right in a lot of people's minds still does define Christianity in part because they are so persistently public about their political engagement in, and, and they have all of these various media outlets that, you know, so TBN and Christian Broadcasting Network and all of these different televangelists and news outlets. And basically Fox News is essentially a mouthpiece for them as well. Um, so I think it's for some people, I think it's hard to see that there is another Christianity out there, right? Just because they've had such a sort of grotesque monopoly of the airwaves for so long. Um, so I do think that they've, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They've, um, they have altered or de- deformed some people's uh, view of what Christianity is. And I think another thing that they're benefiting from right now is their alliance with conservative Catholics who are also seeing right now a resurgence of uh, this various kind of hard-nosed traditionalist Catholicism um, exhibited by somebody like Bill Barr, the outgoing attorney general, who has given speeches attacking milit- what he calls militant secularists. Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, this alliance of evangelicals and Catholics, which dates back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, is becoming even more hardened as their political positions become more hardened and they have fewer allies to make because of their hardened positions. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think that the traditionalist Catholics are not as big a chunk of Catholicism as the conservative white evangelicals are of evangelicalism. But I think that both sides are, are benefiting from this, um, from this intensified alliance that they've had in the Trump era. One of the more remarkable books I've read in the last four years, besides yours, uh, was the, the <laughs> former uh, heir to the alt-right movement, Derek Black, who has denounced white supremacy uh-huh. movement and he's, that he was reared in. And, and one of the best takeaways from the books uh, was his, his warning to readers about Trump's usage of language that he said was common and almost identical to that used by white, the white supremacist movement. And, and you wrote yeah. about this saying, uh, energizing white nationalists was not an accident or quirk of Trump's uh, supposedly anti-establishment presidential run. It was a very center of his campaign strategy. Take us a little deeper there. Well, he was signaling to white people who have grievances, you know, dating back to 
the you know era of Brown v. Board of, Board of Education, right? That they have lost their heritage or their schools or their neighborhoods or what have you. So in his campaign, when he would, you know, one of the one of the most notable campaign rallies he had fairly early in his his 2016 campaign um, was one I can't remember what city it was in. I think it might have been in Birmingham. Alabama, um, but I might be mixing that up. So apologies, I can't remember where it was. Um, but where he, where there was a Black Lives Matter protester at the, at the rally, and um, he ordered for this uh, man to be removed. Um, he mocked him and later said, you know, he should have been, they should have, they, the people who, who took him out of the uh, arena, should have roughed him up. Now, what other signal are you sending? How is that a signal of, you know, oh, Christian love, like, or, or First Amendment, this person's expressing their, their First Amendment um, rights, um, and, or, and, you know, let, let's listen to what he has to say and have a, you know, an open Christian heart about it. Like, none of this was, like, even remotely in that kind of uh, spirit. Uh, and so he, he was definitely signaling to, um, you know, basically, whether there are people who are open white supremacists, you know, open racists who who, who um, use openly racist language, or people who have these kind of racial grievances who might not use openly racist language but still like to hear um, a person in a position of authority say it out loud. Um, and the same was true with his um, anti-Muslim rhetoric, with his um, anti-immigrant rhetoric. When he talks about Mexicans, as being rapists and criminals. I mean, this was the thing that excited um, his base right off the bat, that he was willing to just go out there and say it. He wasn't going to pussyfoot around um, saying anything politically correct or whatever. He was just gonna um, say, these people are outsiders and they don't belong in America. Uh, and so while I think a lot of people political observers thought, well, how is somebody so openly racist going to win the nomination and become president of the United States? And I think we learned a lot about our fellow citizens from the fact that he did. Well, it's, it's no accident that uh, the conversation and tension over racial inequality has elevated in the last four years of a Trump presidency. Um, the man had every chance to condemn neo-Nazis in Charlottesville after the murder of a young woman there that was protesting their presence. And when even goofed on one of the most infamous lines, there were very fine people on both sides. Um, he had more mm -hmm. opportunities this spring and summer after protests began in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Um, he only fumbled even more by dispersing protesters with chemicals uh, and rubber bullets for him to have a photo opt at a church. And even the photo opt at the church of him holding a Bible up without saying any words of course, was pounced on by conservatives as a clear sign of Trump's faithfulness to the Bible. You've studied these folks. Help us understand how one can see the dispersing of peaceful protesters with violence for a Bible photo op as galvanizing white evangelicals. Well, there's a couple of layers to that particular incident. One is that um, a lot of evangelical leaders had two things to say about the murder of George Floyd and the protests that ensued afterwards. One was that the murder of George Floyd was wrong and a tragedy and terrible, 
And the other was that the protesters in the street are left-wing radicals and anarchists and Antifa, and they're trying to destroy our cities, and they're violent and looting and so on and so forth. So they tried to play that as, well, of course, the murder of George Floyd was wrong, but these dirty hippies in the street of America, the streets of America are anti-American and Trump fueled that and Trump fueled that um, with, and, and that is why when he used tear gas to disperse the peaceful protesters in Lafayette square, so he can walk across from the white house to St. John's church um, for that photo op, that that was okay. That was indicative of their strongman president who was protecting their America from these outsiders, you know, what they consider to be anti-fa, anarchists, what have you, right? The weird, I don't even want to call it an irony, the weird twist in that whole incident was that there had been some minor damage to St. John's Church um, over the course of the several days leading up to um, Trump's photo op. And St. John's Church, what you know, is a liberal Episcopalian parish whose members and clergy were actually providing mutual aid to the protesters, you know, water and bathrooms and, and snacks and so forth. And um, so, but what Trump supporters did was they took that minor damage to the church that had happened and blew it up into, see, churches are under attack. And Trump, this is a sign that Trump is going to protect churches because Christianity is under attack. Meanwhile, this denomination of the church in question had been supportive of the protesters and actually has come under attack by conservative evangelicals because of the denomination's support for things like uh, same-sex marriage. So it was just this weird like coalescing of all of these different tropes and um, disinformation. Uh, it was it was so highly symbolic and emblematic of Trump's relationship with um, with white evangelicals and with religion in general. Um, a very resonant moment. Um, but then it just kind of blew on by because you know there was just so many other things happening. But when you unpack it like that, you realize just how much. Trump is willing to use the support of white evangelicals and how they're willing to use moments that aren't even um, moments that show that church's support for their position, but trying to twist it uh, into something like that, if that makes sense. Well, it makes sense how you're explaining it, but no, the logic doesn't make sense in, in the mind right. of this. <laughs> I, you know, I was like just trying to make it somehow make sense. <laughs> well, it's like the same thing, you know, with the church in D.C. Um, just recently, obviously, you know, recording this in December uh, with the Proud Boys, you know, destroyed the property of a church in exactly. D.C. You know, if if that had happened to a white evangelical church, words like persecution and unholy, uh, and unrighteous would be thrown around, uh, but all in all, just ignored because it was a progressive uh, church that. Um, and was also, supporting... I, 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 right, and also that the Proud Boys were supporters of Trump, and so therefore they were okay no matter what they did, right? So you saw white evangelical leaders praising those protests that brought disinformation spewing 
white nationalists, white supremacists to the streets of the nation's capital, but because they were supporting Trump's delusional theories, disinformation about the election having been stolen from him, they were okay, right? So like there was not a word of criticism of the Proud Boys and the, the, the white evangelical leaders were taking cues from Trump who had been asked during one of the uh, debates in the presidential campaign to denounce the Proud Boys and he did not. And not only that, he told them to stand by signaling that he was specifically waiting for them to do the thing that they ultimately did, which was, you know, come out into the streets and, um, and support him. On one hand, it would be easy to feel angry and disillusioned with this religious group that has backed this president. On the other hand, you can feel remorse and sympathy for them because they've fallen for the lies, hook, line, and sinker. You wrote, Trump has consistently used these Christian right supporters as a shield against news coverage that exposes his wrongdoing, potentially threatening his presidency. Do you think that time and distance will help some white evangelicals come to terms with how they were used for political gain? I would like to think that, but I fear that the greater, more overwhelming feeling is that they will see Trump's loss um, as proof that liberals or secularists or whoever their perceived enemies are, the anarchists or Antifa or George Soros's minions, you know, these are all conspiracy theories that run wild in white evangelical circles, that their enemies stole the election from their anointed leader. And so they won't see it as they were being used. They would see it as Trump was this divinely, uh, divinely ordained, divinely anointed leader who took enormous steps to defend their religious freedom through judges, through policy, executive orders, political appointments. And the liberals or the secularists or Antifa or George Soros were so frightened of his, of Trump's support for Christians' religious freedom um, that they, they conspired to steal the election. And I'm very worried that that narrative is just going to persist even when Trump is out of the White House and that it will drive their white evangelicals' political decision-making in 2024 with regard to who they might choose um, you know, in the Republican primary. Uh, and I, I worry that we're, you know, we're in this vicious cycle now. Uh, you're an investigative journalist, uh, not claiming to be a theologian, but you study people and movements. Uh, what kind of effect do you think this marriage of Trump and white evangelicals will have on the church in years and decades to come? I think in some churches, um, I think that there will be, you know, uh, people will need to have conversations with one another <laughs> um, about, about whether they believe the conspiracy theories or whether they still think of Trump as a great leader and how they view their fellow congregants who maybe didn't support Trump. Um, but, 
more broadly, I think Trump has amplified the um, the theology and the performative aspect of uh, conservative Pentecostal and charismatic churches, making them, you know, sort of adding to their celebrity. And so I think that the extent to which you might see the prosperity gospel or these new apostolic movements, these dominionist movements sort of cross-pollinating in kind of more mainstream evangelical churches, I think, I think you might see more of that. I don't know how it's going to affect the church. I do think that, I do think that there's going to be this, that he has contributed to an amplification of the, of that kind of charismatic theology and that politicized uh, charismatic theology. And it'll be really interesting to see um, whether that's just going to sort of continue to spread and cross pollinate in evangelical churches, or if evangelical churches are going to say, Hey, wait, look, we're going to draw a line at, at, at some of this um, more outlandish kind of stuff. Oh, it's fascinating um, as a church historian is, you know, Trumpism is not the first time the church has made its bed with such a polarizing political figure. I mean, you can just look back at uh, sure. decades and centuries past, but it's never ended well for the church. Um, you know, so if you were to give a word of redirection uh, to this political and religious movement, because really that's what it is. It's not two separate groups. It's 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 a merging of, of the two. You know, what, what would that what would that word of redirect be? So I had this very interesting conversation um, with um, the editor of a Southern Baptist uh, newspaper a few months ago. And he was somebody who was very concerned about the QAnon conspiracy theory spreading through evangelical and specifically Southern Baptist um, circles. And he said to me, look, you know, the, for evangelicals, you know, they shouldn't be chasing down these crazy conspiracy theories. The truth is in their Bibles. And while I appreciate that that um, evangelicals believe that, 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 that the Bible is the truth and, um, you know, God's inerrant word, I guess I would also want to say to them, consider, like, you know, that there is also truth outside of your Bible, right? Like, so there are truths that are facts, like undeniable facts. Um, and that you should try to um, reposition yourself or reground yourself with, with facts and reality and consider the sources of these sort of very outlandish theories that might be coming your way. And think about it, not just in terms of like, does this truth conflict with the truth in my Bible, but do, also does it conflict with the truth as I can see it and observe it in the world around me. So it's a, it's a statement that he made to me that I, I keep you know, rolling over in my mind uh, precisely because um, I, I think that that's, that's the message that, that evangelicals who might be confused or misled by conspiracy theories coming in their Facebook feed or whatever, um, you know, need to be thinking about not just their Bible, um, you know, which I understand is like very obviously very important to them and central to their lives, um, but also just sort of the lived reality and what it means for 
biblical mandates like loving your neighbor um, if you're going to believe these wild conspiracy theories instead of um, an observable reality. Personally, um, how did studying this group and their impact on our world affect your personal view of religion, the church, and all that jazz? That's very complicated. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's interesting. I've met so many, so many fascinating people. I've been to so many um, evangelical churches and, and charismatic churches and events and things like that. And I guess people contain multitudes and people in their religious and theological views also contain multitudes. And so, you know, while a lot of people have weaponized religion for not good ends, a lot of people, you know, have a lot of, um, you know, bring a lot of goodwill out of it. So I guess it hasn't changed my view of religion as much as it has changed. Like I said, I tend to look at these things through the prism of how do people attain and retain uh, political power. And so I tend to think of it in those terms more than um, what I think of the religion itself. I got really excited when you said that's super complicated. It, well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. It is beyond complicated, and and maybe someday we'll do another podcast just devoted to that, like yeah. how complicated it is. Well, uh, we we can always turn off the recording and step into the confessional too, uh, if if we need moments <laughs> of that. Uh, well, what are you working on next that we should be aware? Well, um, you know, I'm very, I'm very uh, interested in uh, reporting on how the Biden administration is going to deal with a lot of changes that the Trump administration made when it came to issues surrounding religious freedom and church-state separation. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how all of that plays out and reporting on that. And... Um, I have potentially a couple of other book ideas that I'm in the very early stages of and not very ready to talk about. Um, <laughs> um, but maybe at some point in the future, happy to talk about that. But yeah, so I'm, I'm right now looking, looking forward to, um, to seeing how the administration change, the transition um, plays out and how the Christian right reacts to uh, Biden and changes he might make to the very policies that led them to revere Trump. If you want to stay connected with Sarah, visit sarahposner.com. Follow her on social media. Purchase Unholy wherever books are sold. Sarah, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, but beyond this, thank you for your willingness to write about difficult things, leading us to rethink why we think and act as it relates from our faith into our politics. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.
This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.